Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. So, let's start. We're in, we're in a series on covenant and kingdom, right? We started a few weeks ago, and the idea is that God is both our Father and our King. In God, we have a Father and we have a King, and these are two mega themes that are woven like DNA all through the pages of the Bible. We have a father and we have a king. And the father shows up with a covenant. He initiates a covenant. He comes to us. Uh, he starts a relationship with us. This is not something that we do. This is not a position that we earn. This is something that God initiates in the covenant. And we have a king, right? We have a king that uh, when we are welcomed into uh, the family, now we also become citizens in the kingdom with responsibility. We have a father and we have a king. We have a covenant relationship and we have kingdom responsibility. And we've started and we've gone through, we've looked at Abraham and Sarah. We looked at uh, Joseph. Last week we looked at Moses about how they had a relationship with God and how that spurred them onto responsibility, representing the kingdom and fighting for the kingdom. This morning we're going to take a look at David. And this is almost like, in the Old Testament, a pinnacle moment of covenant and kingdom coming together. That David had a relationship with God that formed his identity. And as a son of the king, he wielded great power because he knew his identity. Right? And we're going to talk about that. In the same way that we have, uh, over the course of the last several weeks, kind of taken an aerial view of the Bible and not just focused in on one text, we're going to do that with David today. Okay? So we left, off, we left off last week talking about Moses. Moses is God's man. Remember, he spends 40 years in Egypt being raised as a prince in Egypt as royalty. And then he comes to his countrymen's defense. He kills an Egyptian and he has to run away. And he spends the next 40 years in the desert, wandering, kind of figuring out his identity, figuring out who he is and what he needs to do, um, and, and his relationship with God. And then uh, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert, is followed by 40 years of God sending him back to Egypt to say, I want you to be my representative and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses leads his people out of Egypt and um, into the promised land. Is this a better idea? Okay. So Moses leads the people. They have this kind of um, relationship with God where they're being led by him, but they're also complaining and saying, wasn't it really good in Egypt? Wouldn't we be better to go back in Egypt? And because they won't trust him, he won't force them into the promised land. And he won't even allow them into the promised land. You have to have trust. You have to have a relationship. You have to follow me if you're going to receive the blessing that I have for you. And so a whole generation dies in the, de in the desert. And a new generation is raised up. And Joshua and Caleb represent two of 12 spies that go into this 
uh, into these foreign lands to spy out the place that God has for them, they're the only two that come back and say, this is good and ripe and ready, and God's going to give it to us. Joshua and Caleb, out of that first generation, are the only two who are able to go into the promised land because of their faith, because of their trust, because of the way that they lean into God. And they lead, they lead God's people to kind of move out and take over the promised land. They don't completely get rid of everybody and completely take the land that God has for them. And so they keep running into trouble. And they move into the, uh, the time of the judges. We actually talked about the judges a few weeks ago uh, in our I Am series. We talked about the cycle of sin that happens through the book of Judges, that the people would be with God, and then they would rebel against God, and then they would feel the consequences of their sin and disobedience and rebellion, and they would cry out to God in their brokenness, and he would rescue them, and they would be with him, and then they'd rebel. And that's kind of the cycle, right, through the book of Judges. The Judges were people who, for all of their flaws, kind of represented God as a protecting agent of God's people. They fought off other nations. They fought off other tribes. They protected God's people. And, um, and through this cycle, through the book of Judges, you can see God's faithfulness, not, not just keeping people from consequences, allowing people to feel consequences, but over and over and over again, coming back to the covenant to say, I will rescue you through the judges. Samuel is the last judge in this season. Samuel is the last judge not a very good father, but he, he did represent what it looked like to walk with God and to, to be a representative with God. Um, as Samuel is leading, the people start to get angsty to say, we want to be like everybody else. We want to be like everybody else. Everybody else has a king. We just have judges. We feel inadequate. And God says, it's good. This plan is good. I'm your king. And they say, nah, we want a human king. We want to be like everybody else. And God says, it's not going to go how you think it will. If you get a king, if you get a king, they're going to take and take and take and take. Humans are like that. Okay? It's better with me. And they're like, we want a king. So God relents, and he gives them what they're asking for. And he talks with Samuel, and he says, go get them a king. And Samuel goes and finds a stud. Samuel, Samuel finds Saul, who stands head and shoulders above everybody else. He's an attractive dude. He's well-built. He's sturdy. He's everything that you would imagine a king would be, right? And he actually starts out really well. He starts out following God. But the thing that's going to kind of be the theme this morning, or one of the themes, is Samuel has a, or, uh, Saul has a problem waiting. Saul has a problem waiting waiting for God. When God says, I'm going to lead you out into battle, but I want you to wait until Samuel gets there. Saul's like, ah, we, no, we got we to gotta go. The time is now. We got to go. And that doesn't work, right? Remember, no, Lord, doesn't really work well. And so Samuel refu- or Saul refuses to wait. Samuel shows up and says, what have you done? You were supposed to wait. This is not how God had it in mind. And so God says, I'm going to remove Saul from being king. You will no longer be king. He declares it, and that's not lived out right away. Okay? So there's a big big time 
between when God says, you're no longer my guy, and when he says David is and David becomes king and Saul's no longer king. There's a big gap. So let's talk about the gap. God sends Samuel to to Bethlehem. And he says, I want you to go and I want you to find the next king. And he finds Jesse. And all of Jesse's sons, seven of them come out, except it's like a Cinderella story, right? Jesse sends all of his seven sons out. He's got eight, but little David is in the fields, inconsequential guy. It's almost a reverse Joseph story, right? Joseph didn't work because he had kind of um, uh, status, right? David is working because he has no status. Um, So Jesse lines up his seven boys, and Samuel goes through all of them. and is like, no, 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 God's not saying anything. God's not saying it. God is not affirming this. He says, you got to have somebody else. And uh, finally David comes. Who's this guy who's watching the sheep. And God says, that's the one. That's the guy who's going to grow up and be my king. And God chooses David. Uh, David had to wait. Right? This is almost a test. Saul couldn't wait. Are you able to wait? I'm going to call you king now, but it's going to be years before you realize, before this comes to reality, uh, that comes to the time. David is this shepherd without glory. So here are the two things that are going on in David because he's a shepherd at heart, right? And he knows God as shepherd. David becomes a worshiper and David becomes a warrior. So as David is out tending the flocks, as he's leading the flocks, he has time to reflect on who God is. He has time to commune with God, to be with God. Many of the Psalms, I think, come out of this time or they, they originate in this time and build a platform to him for him to become a musician, for him to become a poet, to become somebody who's just deeply reflective. Psalm 23 that we talked about a few weeks ago is this beautiful poem of how somebody has God as their shepherd. It's written by a shepherd. It's written by David as he's tending his flock, as he's taking care of his sheep, as he's looking at things that would cause them harm, as he's protecting them, as he's leading them through the valley of the shadow of death and making sure they don't go astray. David, David will say, God, you do that for me. God, you do that for me. You are my shepherd. This is covenant. You take care of me. And David didn't know the father language yet. God hadn't specifically shown up to say, I want you to call me Father, the way that we have him now revealing himself. But he has him as shepherd, and he has this covenant relationship where he's able to lean in and follow God. He had a confidence and a courage that led him to worship. Do you know God as your shepherd? If we could just like stop and pause there, and apply that. David knew God. It set a foundation for him. David knew God as shepherd, as one who would provide for him, who would take care of him, who would lead him, who would protect him. David knew God that way. Do you know God as your shepherd? Because if you don't, if you don't know God as shepherd and father, you're going to have a distorted image of God as king. Right? If you don't know the God who loves you, who cares for you, who protects you, you're going to have a messed up view 
of God as king who has demands. And you'll put that as the priority in the relationship. And it's going to be messed up from the start. If you don't know God as shepherd, I'm going to urge you, take time to look at God who provides. Look at God who loves. And start to, if you want to test God, say, do you really love me? Not in a bratty sort of like, I don't think you do. But like, ask tough questions. Do you really? Because I don't think you do. Do you really? Show that to me. Show me how you love me. I think is a question that God is okay with. Sincere, hard questions, God is great with. Snotty, bratty questions, often I think God has patience with, but sometimes you'll get a smack because that's the best way to love you, right? Sometimes when I get into my snotty, grumbly, somebody slaps me, and it's the best thing they could do for me. That's how they love me in that moment. Wake up, bud. And it, I don't like it. But a day or two later, it's like, man, that was good. I needed to see differently. Accept that from God. Do you know God as shepherd? And if you don't, look for it. So David knows God as his shepherd in the ups and downs of life. If you look back to Joseph, Joseph knew God. Joseph walked with God. It didn't make his life easy, right? Like he had a roller coaster of a life, and yet he knew that God was with him. David's a shepherd. He has no glory, and yet he's able to commune with God to say, I'm in a place with God where I know he takes care of me. He doesn't necessarily give me status or prestige. He doesn't make my life easy, but I know God is here. I was reading, uh, reading recently a Christmas Advent book, and I was, I was pretty convicted at his, in my own unwillingness. Like, I struggle with unvill- unwillingness. I struggle, and maybe you do too, I struggle with an unwillingness to be inconvenienced. If I have my time, I want it to be my time. I don't want people to, like, inconvenience me. And I'll, I'll just be honest with that. Like, that's not something I'm proud of. That's not something I, wanna, I want to be like, that's just how it is. So I, I want to grow in that. But I struggle with an unwillingness to be inconvenienced. I struggle with an unwillingness to wait. I want things now. <laughs> it's like uh, bad NFL lip reading. You guys watched that a few years ago with Jim Harbaugh? It's my favorite one. I want it now. I want cake now. Anybody? Does anybody remember that? My favorite. Okay? I, but that's like an unwillingness to wait, an unwillingness to listen to challenge. If somebody who should gets in my face to challenge me, sometimes I have this defense mechanism that goes up. I don't want to be challenged. I have an unwillingness to say yes to God. I have an unwillingness to be generous. Not all the time, but I struggle with that. And, and it turned a corner for me because the Advent book said we all struggle with unwillingness. And here's what Christmas is about, God's willingness. Christmas is about a willing God who came to unwilling people because there was no other way. God is willing. He's willing to give. 
and he's willing to be patient and he's willing to be inconvenienced and God is willing to serve and he's willing to come and he's willing to be our shepherd even when we walk off a cliff. Even when we go astray, God is willing and he's more than willing, like reluctant willing, like, oh, fine, okay. God, that's what he wants. Over and over and over again, he says, you will know me as faithful. I will not waver. I will come for you. David knows God as shepherd. And his response is worship. So I don't know if we can put, do we have this triangle that we could put up? We talk about this triangle of father, to know God as father, leads us to have an identity. And then out of the identity comes obedience, right? It starts there. We know God as father. God, David knew God as shepherd father, okay? In its similar language here. He knew God who loved him, who took care of him, who guided him, who protected him. That formed his identity. And out of that, David was willing to wait. David was willing to be obedient. When you recognize that your father is the king and that you are the child of the king, that puts you in a position of authority. And as you live out of your identity in obedience, you're able to live out of your authority in power, right? Obedience, not a stingy kind of like, oh, I should do this, but an obedience living true to who you are as a child of the king gives you power that this world needs. Do you guys see that? So it's, there's a stark contrast between David and Saul in how they view God and then how they view their identity. So David is also, he's a worshiper and he's a warrior, right? He's a representative of God's people. So God's people have gone to battle against the Philistines and they're at a standstill. The Philistine giant has come out Goliath has come out, and he spent a few weeks taunting the whole nation. Just send one. Send one out to me who will fight me. We don't need to all go to war, but whoever wins this, the other will serve. The other will serve uh, for all time. Come to battle. Send one. Now Saul, who is head and shoulders above everybody else, who was like the uh, seemed like, God's answer to give us a king. Saul is sitting in his tent saying, I wonder who could go. I wonder who could go. And he doesn't have the courage himself to go. David's dad sends him to go check on his brothers uh, at the front lines. And he's like, go check on them, bring them some food, check in, see how they're doing. David walks up and he sees and he hears Goliath taunting. And he says, what is going on? I know my God is king. I know my shepherd God is king. And I hear this Philistine shouting out things that I will not tolerate. Who's going to stand up to him? Nobody? Send me. And Saul kind of laughs at him. Says, no, no. You don't, have you seen the dude? No. David's like, I have a different power. Right? I have an identity from my shepherd God. And as I walk that out, my God is king. I have an authority that this Philistine doesn't have. And therefore, I have a power that this Philistine has never dreamed of. 
and also some skills, right? I've spent time protecting my sheep from animals. So I've got quickness. The giant isn't as quick as me. I've got this sling thing that I can, uh, I can do some damage with. I'm a really good aim. I've got a skill set that God has given me, and I've got a God. I've got the God. I've got king on my side. Who can stand against that? And Saul's like, take my armor. Like, at least take that. He doesn't get it, right? He doesn't get it. Saul says, take my armor. David puts it on. It's like, I can't move in this. I, this is, this is going to mess everything up. And I, so I think there's a metaphor in that. I think there's a metaphor in that. We often look to human protection when God is saying, that's silly. You are not going to find it there. I have everything to give you. You don't need to scramble in this awkward outfit trying to figure out how you're going to make it through this battle. Just, just walk with me and let me do it for you. It'll require obedience, right? It'll require a walking out. It'll require faith on your part. But remember who you have. Remember whose you are and walk that out. In this telltale kind of character-revealing moment, David looks at Goliath in 1 Samuel 17 in verse 45. He says, all will know. And then David said to the Philistine Goliath, who's been taunting everybody, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine uh, this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hand. And he does. Goliath starts coming at him. David takes the stones out of his pocket, puts it in his sling, and whips it. One shot drives it right into his forehead. I don't know if that... Uh, I think what happened was it stunned him so much that he fell over, and he's going like, what is happening? And in that time, David is able to come and give the death blow. And God wins a victory because David is able to wait on God. David is able to trust in God's resources and walk out in the authority and power that God had for him. Power, David's power, if we can look at those triangles again, David's power came from obedience as the two triangles match up. David's power came from his obedience as he recognized that the authority that he had came out of his identity, that God, his father, shepherd, was also the king. Those things flowed together, and they showed up in great power. So application, question for you. Do you have the covenant confidence that David had as you face giants in your life? Do you find protection in human-made responses, in human-made answers, in human-made armor? Or do you find it in God? 
Do you rest in God and are you secure in God? Or are you always trying to scramble to figure out how to do it to save your own neck? You are invited. You are invited to put down the armor. To recognize that the armor will hold you back. And God says, you can strip that off and come at me looking like nothing. And you will have everything. You will have everything. You're invited to take off the armor. So this happens sometimes for me. If somebody accuses me of something, and rather than, rather than lean into my instinct to want to defend myself, I can let God defend me. Like, I don't need to come to my defense. I don't, I don't even need people to come to my defense, really. I, I can rest to say accusations will fly. That's, that's what life is. Accusations will fly. I'll rest in God. And God, God is enough to defend me. It'll be okay. This happened when I was a kid. Uh, when I turned 12, I took a babysitting course because I wanted to be a legit babysitter, uh, learn, how to, learn how to change diapers, learn how to take care of little kids. And then I, in the neighborhood, I would go out and I'd say, hey, I'd love to babysit your kids. And I had this uh, one relationship with a family down the road that I was a regular babysitter for. And my best friend who lived next door, her name was Dina, she and I would kind of split time as babysitters for this family. And then one day they came and they say, hey, you stole my son's $20. He had $20. He told me he showed you this in his wallet. He was so excited. It's not there anymore. You took it. I said, no, I didn't. And I hadn't. I didn't take it. They're like, you took it. We, that's the only thing that could have happened. You took it. Okay. I didn't take it, but I never babysat for them again. A few months later, I was talking with Dina. I was like, hey, you know, like anything ever happened? She's like, oh, yeah, they found it behind the fridge. All right. That's how that goes. But I don't have to, I don't have to go back and say, apologize. Fill my identity. Because I don't want to walk around with my head low I want to walk around with my head high, justified. And I want you to tell the neighborhood because you told everybody I stole. I didn't have to do that. One, I don't think I was brave enough to do that. (laughs) But there's also a confidence that comes in saying, just let it be. It's good when you can lean into an accusation and not have to defend yourself. Because you know who you are. It's good when you can lean into an accusation that's true without a need to defend yourself or to cover up. To say, that doesn't, that doesn't uh, define my identity. I messed up and I can have the humility to say so. I can have the humility to confess and to repent where I want to defend myself and push you away, saying, I don't have to hear this. It's good if you're innocent to not have to defend yourself. It's good if you're guilty to just say so. And not, and not feel the need to like be wrecked in, in your very soul and spirit, like who you are. 
but to say, I can face into this. It's okay. David knew who he was. And so he can go out as God's representative. And he won that battle. His power came from obedience as he recognized his identity as a son of the king. Do you have the covenant confidence that comes when you face giants? So David's popularity grows. David wins that battle. Saul recognizes this. Saul starts to put him in battle at opportune places on the front lines. And David keeps winning and winning and winning. And one of the things that happens is Saul gets so jealous that he puts David in the fiercest places so that he won't have to contend with him. And David keeps winning, right? David just keeps winning, and his reputation grows. And Saul starts to hear songs of people like, Saul's killed the thousands, David's killed the tens of thousands, and this destroys Saul. It destroys Saul. And if you want to look at why, it's because those triangles. Saul put his identity in his reputation. Saul served his reputation. And so if somebody else starts to rise in reputation, that knocks on his identity. And he's got to do something to help his identity, to help his reputation come back. So he's trying to get rid of David. David uh, is called as a worshiper. Uh, through the time that he's been a shepherd, he's learned how to play the harp. He's a poet. He's uh, a musician. And he's actually called into Saul's courts to calm Saul down. He said God would send spirits to like torment him because of what was going on in his soul. And David would come and play the harp. And I'm picturing Saul sitting there on his throne, watching this watching David who's winning victories, and now he's able to just sit peacefully and play the harp. And Saul is burning because his identity is found in something else. He picks up his spear and he throws it at David. Like he cannot stand it anymore and he just tries to kill him. Fine, the front line won't do it. I'll just do it. And it misses and David goes away. David flees. And he spends 13 years fleeing. He ends up living in a cave. He, uh, he grows a camaraderie, a brotherhood around him and a community. He continues to live out of his identity. And God continues to form in him this shepherd king. So, right off the tail of the last one, I'd ask the question to you. I'd ask the question to me. Do you tend to be a spear thrower or a shepherd? Do you tend to be a power taker or a power giver? Do you tend to be someone who wants people to serve you or looks to serve others? Are you a spear thrower or are you a shepherd? Are you somebody who has, who has angst in your identity? And so in order to fill that, you, you keep climbing and climbing and climbing and tearing people down along the way. That's a spear thrower. Or are you somebody who knows your identity and then can use that to bless others? to serve others, to live out of that. Because Saul's identity isn't found in God, he works the triangle backwards. 
He wields power to try and build his identity so that he can have a reputation instead of seeing it the way uh, we're made. Saul is tormented, and you will be tormented if you try to find your own identity, if you try to make your own identity. The spear thrower is somebody of insecurity, somebody who hoards blessing, and the shepherd is somebody who's secure, who can share blessing. And here's, here's something I read a number of years ago that I actually love. We treat power like a zero-sum game. We treat power like if you're growing in power, that must mean I'm shrinking in power, right? That's the way economy works. If you get something, it must mean I'm losing something. And so I'll fight for it. And you can see this in Saul. David is rising in power. Saul sees this as a threat that he's diminishing. And so he strikes because he looks at power as a zero-sum game. It's all got to be equal. God looks at power very, very differently. Power in God's economy is infinite. So if you're powerful and somebody else comes into your life and you have a chance to bless them and you see them rising in power, that does not diminish you. That makes you more powerful. That you could be not only a hero, but a hero maker makes this happen, right? Everybody gains power. Nobody loses in God's economy. Everybody rises. David's able to see this and Saul is not. Don't be afraid of powerful people. Don't cower at powerful people. Recognize for you to be powerful doesn't mean that they need to be less. For you to be powerful requires that you know your identity and you live true to that. Who has empowered you? Who has come into your life? Who have like breathed into you and apprenticed you or discipled you or uh, trained you or built you up, encouraged you? Who has empowered you? Say, I want to see power rise. I believe in you. Who's done that? And as proof of what I'm saying, when you grew, did you, see, did you think of them less? The most powerful people in my life have grown when they've believed in me, in my mind. I've respected them more, and I've grown in that. Some of that's my own limitation or whatever. Like, I like them. You like me, so I'll give it back. Whatever. But that's respect grows when respect is given. Power grows when power is given. Who has empowered you? Who has believed in you? Who has cheered you on? And who are you doing that for? You don't have to be a spear thrower. You can look at people in your life and say, I want to breathe into you. I don't want to take you out. I want to see you rise up. I want to bless you. I want to serve you. I want to see you rise. Who are you doing that for? David teaches us that God is a covenant God, and yet we still have to fight for the kingdom, right? Goliath needed somebody to step up to him. And David did. This covenant and kingdom idea of being and doing 
hold hands. David knew who he was, and then he knew what he had to do. Saul didn't know who he was. And so he could never be, and he could never do what he really needed to be and do. David learned the not yet of God's kingdom. God appointed David to be king, and he had to wait to see it come. God appointed him, and he had to wait. And then one day, David really became king. He rested in the covenant while fighting for the kingdom. He was a worshiper, and he was a warrior. So worship, we could say, almost is our response to the covenant. And the fight is our response to the kingdom. That we would fight to see the kingdom break out in this place. That we would see the kingdom come. Jesus reveals this similar uh, determination. When he knows who he is, and he shows up and he declares healing and deliverance and justice for the oppressed, mercy for the abused. And if we're following Jesus, we fight for those things. Not just because we want to do good things, because that's the way the kingdom works. If our dad is the king, if we're children of the king, we live in the kingdom and we fight to see it come. We wait. We wait for the arrival in the manger. I love the extended Christmas season as we say Jesus is coming. It's like, again, every year, it's like watching a movie and say, I hope it ends the same way. Every year Christmas happens, right? Every year Jesus comes and we, there's, December is this growing anticipation of the king is coming, the baby is coming. We're waiting for that coming again and we worship and we fight to see the kingdom break through and we're still even now in the season of waiting. The king is coming back, right? It doesn't end with Christmas. Because the baby in the manger grows up to be the king coronated on the cross. And he rises from the dead and he says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. The kingdom has been brought here. Jesus says, continue to pray that the kingdom would come. And one day it will fully come. And we wait. And while we wait, we fight. We see it happening. Who are you worshiping? And who are you fighting for? Do you know God as your shepherd? Do you know God as your father? That he loves you? Do you have the covenant confidence that David showed as you face giants in your life? You're invited to take off the man-made armor. Are you a spear thrower or a shepherd? Are you a power taker or a power giver? I want so badly for you, for us, to be a church, for you to be people who live in the covenant, who know your identity as a child of the Father, and then recognize your responsibility in the kingdom in that order. I want that for you. Jesus, as he fulfills the covenant he says I'm willing there's no other way and I'll even meet you in your unwillingness that's what Christmas is about that's the covenant and kingdom that we get to live in let's pray
Father, we thank you that we're invited to know you that way. That we're invited to know you as Father. That we're invited to know uh, that we have an identity as your children. And you're not just our Father, you're the King. And we are children of the King. We thank you for David, who knew who he was, who rested in you, who worshipped, and then also also saw his responsibility to fight for your kingdom. Not just to defend his identity, but to be a representative of you. Help us to mimic him. Help us to follow him in that way that we would so know ourselves as your children that we wouldn't scratch and claw for our identity, but we would fight to represent you, to bring your kingdom here, to love well. Help us to grow as people who give power away because we have all the power at our access. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move.